Good morning, good evening, and welcome. If this is your first time discovering the InStep podcast, then we're delighted to have you along. And for those of you regular or even irregular listeners, many thanks for coming back. You are, after all, why we're here. Now, if you're following what we're up to at InStep, you'll know that we are working with companies of all sizes, from the smallest, earliest startups to some of the largest corporations in the world. Now, every one of these companies has some fascinating stories and lessons about building businesses and looking for how to apply innovation to solve new or old problems. There are, however, some particularly fascinating stories about companies that have existed for around 10 years. At this point, almost every company will have found its product market fit, be generating revenue, and in most cases, move beyond startup to scale up. But each of them will also have had to navigate through some tough headwinds, and in many cases, shift tack to identify what their clients really need. Well, Predicat is one such company, and I was delighted to catch up again with Bob Reville, co-founder and CEO. I was there at the birth of Predicat in 2012, and it's been fascinating, although at times a bit sobering, to see how the company has evolved, with a mission to help insurers and others understand the emerging risks and potential litigation costs from substances that have the potential to be as expensive as asbestos. Bob and his team reveal some of the hidden problems facing society and insurers in the years ahead. But you don't have to be a casualty underwriter or even have any knowledge of liability insurance to find this a lot of value from the discussion. We cover it a lot. Bob explains why a change in name from the original offering of Predicat as a casualty catastrophe model to move on to scenarios got the attention of underwriters as buyers, but since then reverted back to the original idea of a catastrophe model. You will learn about the new major threat from litigation finance and hear about the three phases of emerging risk and what insurers can do about them. Look out for emerging interest, emerging damage, and emerging litigation. Well, do you ever wonder how to determine the cost benefit of the data, analytics, or technology that you are buying or selling? Well, Bob reveals some of the approaches and measurements that Predicat uses to demonstrate the value to his clients of using his product, the Neko Model X. Well, Neko Model X, if you're wondering what it does and where the name comes from, we reveal that too. Well, with the license of Predicat as one of our corporate members at Instec, details of how to contact Bob and his colleagues are in the episode notes. If you are an insurer looking for technology partners or building and selling your own solutions and are interested in membership too, please contact me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn or any of us, hello at instec.co. Let's hear from Bob. Bob, great to have you back. Always great to talk to you. I'm sort of slightly envious because you're sitting in Los Angeles and I'm sitting here in minus four degrees in London. So even virtually, I'm going to be enjoying the California sunshine, but much more than that, I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. Welcome. Well, I have heard that you guys have some snow on the ground, which to those of us in Los Angeles, just sounds completely charming. It conjures up visions of Ebenezer Scrooge throwing open the shutters and calling for the Christmas goose on a snowy Christmas morning. We don't have anything like that here. Yeah, well, you're welcome to that if you want. Just give us a bit of your sunshine. But just <laughs> a bit of background before we kick off. So you are CEO and co-founder of Predicat, founded back in 2012. Prior to that, you were at RAND, the, uh, the government research organization. And I love your tagline, which comes up actually if you Google Predicat, turning risk into profitable and sustainable growth. It's so good. We've actually stolen it for the tagline for the podcast. So thank you for that as well. And really looking forward to catching up since we last spoke. I'm looking forward to hearing about Neko Model X. What does that actually mean? And this whole new category of litigation finance that you're looking at. We've known each other a while. We last spoke uh, for the podcast anyway, uh, back in December 2019, episode 57. Uh, we got into really interesting details about what you're doing with Predicat. So really looking forward to the update 
on that. You were on 848 downloads when I looked earlier today, so it's trending well. Great to have you back. Now, at 10 years old, you're no longer a startup. I guess you're a survivor in some ways. But kind of intrigued to know what was it back then that gave you the itch to, to move out of a kind of relatively safe job and, and start up your own company? Well, there's two ways to answer that question. First of all, there's the subject of the company that was super interesting to me. We were working at RAND on the scope and scale of asbestos litigation. And we were also working on terrorism insurance, public policy. And people who were looking at our work on asbestos were saying to us, gee, uh, can you help us with what the next asbestos is and how we can manage the risk of the next asbestos? And meanwhile, we were working with RMS on this terrorism insurance work, and we started thinking, you know, this whole area of catastrophe modeling is interesting, and maybe there's some way to start to build catastrophe modeling-like technology and apply it to liability to solve the question of the next asbestos. And so that was an inspiration for us to start to develop some technologies. But on the other side, I was working at this fantastic public policy research institute nonprofit. And I was there really because I wanted to make a difference. And at the same time, I was wondering, is that really the best way that I can make a difference? And I was at UCLA one day and I heard a speech by this CEO of the Kauffman Foundation. His name is Carl Schramm. And he said to the audience, how many of you can name a nonprofit started in the last 50 years that has changed the world or in fact, or is even a household name. And he said, well, you know, maybe Habitat for Humanity, you know, there might be a couple. Now, how many of you can name a for-profit company started in the last 50 years that is a household name? And then of course, Walmart, Google. And then he said, so why is it that all of you who want to change the world are going into nonprofits? Start a company. And so I thought, yeah, Man, that's good advice. That is a great story. And I just want to come back to the, also the motivation. So I think there's the motivation in terms of the application, which was the losses from asbestos, which of course is a long tail risk going back decades, was impacting insurers. But if you look back now, kind of what the mission was, you know, how has that played out? And I think most importantly, what was the driver, what has been the driver for people to work with you? Because I'm a great believer that, Regulation is one of the biggest drivers of change. Just interested how the story has evolved or the the offering has evolved over those those ten years. So our vision was that we would apply catastrophe modeling technologies and insights in order to solve this problem of the next asbestos. So the way to think about that is that what we wanted to create was a catastrophe model. So to do that. We understood that the core technology was to identify emerging risks. And we came up with some algorithms that identified risks from peer-reviewed scientific literatures. And we went out and we started talking to clients and we said, look, we're building a casualty catastrophe model. Would you be interested? And they'd say, you're building what? Why would we be interested in that? And I'd say, well, look at this cool technology that helps capture emerging risks from the scientific literature. And they'd say, that we're interested in, that we'll use in underwriting. I don't even know what you're talking about, casualty catastrophe model. So we stopped calling ourselves a catastrophe modeler for several years 
and instead just refer to ourselves as liability emerging risk analytics. And our primary audience was underwriting. Tell me a bit about that, that difference between the underwriters and other people you, you might, have, might have sold to, because there's some lessons in that as well. Underwriting found all kinds of uses for it. It was useful for large account underwriting, directly understanding what a particular company was exposed to. And as we learned that, we said, you know, it's not just enough to identify and describe the risks, but we have to turn it into a database of company information. And so that was actually a little bit of a shift in our focus, not just scenarios, but, but company profiles became a core of our offering. But we continued to build the model out, and over time, as it became increasingly quantitative and we started to build probabilistic elements to it, then enterprise risk management and exposure management became increasingly interested. And then every time I talk to you, I, I learn more about the horrible things that could happen to us. So you're building all these great analytical tools that can tell people what the potential risks are from areas they hadn't contemplated. How, how do you actually get people to give you the time of day if they, if they go, well, here's Bob, he's going to tell me about things I didn't know I have to worry about. Now he's going to tell me what I have to worry about and actually he wants to sell me a product as well. I mean, what, what motivates them to give you the time of day? Well, first of all, anybody who had a memory of the impact of asbestos on insurance businesses was immediately interested in a technological solution to it. So as much as we talk about property catastrophe, in fact, the largest insurance catastrophe in history was asbestos. And even today, it is casualty reserve inadequacy that can be driven by casualty catastrophes that drives more insolvencies for insurers than property issues by far. And so there is a very significant business issue that we were solving. We have to dig into the emerging risks because it's the emerging risks that drive the losses. Effectively, in casualty, after there is a large-scale event like an asbestos, the companies that created the problem go out of business, the insurance forms are changed, and the products are removed from the market. And so that thing is never going to cause the next problem. It's got to be something new. So you've got to build in this emerging risk technology in order to be able to manage these exposures going forward. That was the new insight. And so, yes, you're right. So we are constantly generating a stream of scary things that our clients need to think about. And, you know, insurance people are interested in risk. And in fact, they tend to find it interesting and want to learn more about it. And in fact, a lot of the things that we look at are issues that people wonder about in their own lives. They wonder about, should I be putting my plastic cups into my dishwasher? Is that going to be a problem? And should I be worried about the fact that the newspapers are saying that food packaging has forever chemicals in them? And those are some of the questions that we're trying to answer. But we also convert that into down the road, if it's true that people are harmed by these things, how might that result in large-scale litigation over water contamination or bodily injury or whatever it might be? I think bringing it to that personal touch makes a big difference. And then I kind of keyed up at the beginning, but I wanted you to, to talk a little bit more about it. Litigation finance. Can you just talk about why that is one of the big emerging threats just now and actually even what it actually is? When we first started 
in 2011. I'd say another issue that we initially confronted in the environment, the market environment, was that some people would say, you know, asbestos was a problem, but it is not a problem anymore. There hasn't really been a major mass litigation like that, you know, for at least 10 years. And so I'm not sure why you're trying to solve that problem. And there was some truth to that in 2012 through about 2015. But then starting in about 2015, the environment started changing around us. And the frequency of new mass litigation started to increase. So we suddenly saw Roundup and Talc and the emergence of the perfluorinated and polyfluorinated chemicals as litigation. We saw the chlorpyrifos litigation and the repetitive head injury litigation. And I can go through a, a list of new litigations that are emerging. But we've gone to a world now where the frequency of the initiation of new asbestos-like mass litigation is two to three per year. So what changed in the environment is the rise of litigation finance. So prior to 2016, there there was litigation finance, but they hadn't figured out exactly how they wanted to enter the mass tort funding market. Mass torts, though, are incredibly expensive and incredibly complex. And when you can bring capital to them from a plaintiff's perspective, they suddenly can be incredibly profitable. And so that's what's happened. Swiss Re did a study last year that found that the size of the litigation finance market is now between 20 to $30 billion. They estimate it'll be $31 billion by 2027. And the largest single area of investment is mass torts. And they invest in it in all kinds of ways. So for instance, they have non-recourse loans to plaintiffs. So what that means is a plaintiff who files a lawsuit can get a loan that they only have to pay back if they win the lawsuit. Well, that changes the entire dynamic around settlement. And you have a strong incentive to hang in there until the jury verdict. And that by itself can start to explain the nuclear jury verdicts that we're increasingly hearing about in the liability circles. But you know, that's just one type of instrument. Another thing that litigation finance invests in is return-linked interest rate loans to law firms. So in other words, if you have a portfolio of litigation and that litigation is successful, you'll end up paying a higher interest rate on this loan. That allows the funders to essentially share in the upside and it reduces the risk to the law firm. And that provides capital for them to then invest in the science and the marketing to identify the plaintiffs. And again, it's just another driver of increased mass storage. I'm just going to jump in here. Bob goes on to give two more examples of what is happening in litigation finance. And the first of these issues where there is a very high probability of the litigation succeeding. And that is now being set up as a securitized asset. There are now securitized claims in mass litigation. So you can get a security that has essentially as the underlying asset, a thousand roundup claims, for instance. And there'll be a particular expected benefit in terms of 
you're going to get this contingency fee litigation. So there will be some fraction that will be paid out from these thousand claims. And that is an asset, by the way, those types of securities are, according to Swiss Re, have a return of 26% and they're uncorrelated with the market. So you're finding that institutional investors like the Harvard Endowment Fund are investing in this kind of an asset. Not only that, we've even been hearing from insurers who sometimes are outsourcing their investment decisions that once they do an evaluation of what has been invested in, they find out there's litigation finance in there. All this, just to kind of sum it up across the board, has created an environment that makes pursuing litigation in the United States easier for this kind of large-scale litigation. And it's directly translating into this increased frequency of high aggregation, long latency risks. Yeah, well, I think we're going to have to take those words and turn that into something people can read because there's, there's such a different area for many people. I think, you know, we're hearing about social inflation and a study recently for hurricane loss, the costs, of the legal costs are now outweighing the actual physical costs. And I, I guess a lot of this is actually retroactive because you've got the long tail. It's, it, you can't stop some of that. You can to the future, but some of that, is it going back into the past and looking at claims? Is that, is that part of the challenge you've got, first of all, Les? You can't sort of exclude it in the insurance contract. That's absolutely the problem. In fact, that is in many ways, the core of the problem in liability. Liability has this trigger called the occurrence form and the the payment, you know, the, the underlying policy year that covers a risk is the year that the occurrence was. So let's suppose you're working in a factory and you're exposed to some chemical and it causes bodily injury, but that bodily injury takes 20 years to ultimately emerge. Sometimes, in fact, the policy year that is relevant is the one that was written 20 years ago. That's one thing. But in fact, actually, in some states, it's not just the one that was was written 20 years ago. It's all 20 years. And so you can get unbelievable cross-time aggregation. That's something Property Cat can't conceive of. But the cross-time aggregation is the largest driver of the risk for liability. That's really interesting. I mean, we've sort of learned about you, you can have global aggregation with cyber because with physical, you're kind of constrained to some extent within time and geographies. With cyber, you're somewhat more constrained in time. But you're, what you're saying is you've, you're unconstrained in time and in geography and you can't stop it. How are you helping insurance companies? This is already out there. They use your Neco model X. I'd love to find out why you called it that. How are you actually helping them in their efforts to, you know, ultimately, they want to, they want to manage their costs. Back to your tagline, they want to turn risk into profitable and sustainable growth. How does it all come together? One of the things, in fact, that we have developed since 2019 is what we call our emerging risk framework. And... It's funny because in some ways, it's a very simple insight. And at one end of what Predicats created, we have the liability catastrophe model, which is complex and deeply technological. And on the other hand, we have the simple emerging risk framework. And what it comes down to is 
we say there's a timeline of emergence for all latent emerging risks, and we break it into three phases, emerging interest, emerging damage, and emerging litigation. Okay, there's a lot going on here. So we've added in some verbal bullets to help you understand between these three areas of emerging interest, emerging damage, and emerging litigation. The emerging interest phase is the time that you first identify a risk. And we recommend to our clients that there's no further action that needs to be taken at that point because the probability that that risk will result in litigation in the next seven years is less than 1%. But much of this we're capturing from scientific literatures and legal scholarship. And for scientific literatures, those first few studies that allow us to identify the risk become a larger literature over time. Three animal studies becomes 30 animal studies plus five human studies and some in vitro studies as well. And that starts to look like the body of scientific evidence that can be used to bring litigation. And so that's the phase that we call emerging damage. There's no litigation yet, but you can understand a lot about what the underlying exposure is. You can understand the industries involved. You can even convert it into company information. And you can put probabilities on it based upon a model that essentially puts the hat of a, a plaintiff's attorney or a litigation funder on and says, how good would this litigation would be? How expensive would it be? And how likely would it be successful given the science? And so... That's the emerging damage phase, and that's the phase in which we work with clients to help them to manage their aggregation, to help them to underwrite, and to sometimes develop exclusions, but sometimes steer their portfolio in ways that help to manage their overall exposure. We also work with them to think about whether their reinsurance program is well-suited to the underlying named perils that exist in their portfolio. The emerging damage phase, we call that the sweet spot. It's the Goldilocks phase. It's not too early. It's not too late. And that is where you can actually start to shape your portfolio to make it robust to this two to three per year of new litigation that's emerging. And then emerging litigation, that's obviously that time that insurers used to try and start to manage the risk. And that's obviously too late. But we also produce an enormous amount of information for that phase, too. And that continues to be an area where we help them develop defense strategies and to think about how far the litigation could go and develop scenarios around the worst case scenario of what a litigation might look like and, and things like that. So how does Predicat work with its clients? So how do we work with them? I was meeting with a... CEO of one of our clients the other day talking about renewal. And they were saying how a few years ago, they started looking at what we were producing on PFAS. And PFAS is the perfluorinated and polyfluorinated chemicals or the forever chemicals. They took some actions at that time, which were in advance of some of the litigation and, you know, believe that we helped them enormously. And they are, eternally grateful to us for the way in which we help them manage what they think they will do better than much of the rest of the industry as a result of what they had seen in our program. And then, Bob, just another 
area that you and I've talked a bit about, and I think everybody's familiar with this when you think about risk reduction. But with all the best tools, analytics, and advice, yeah, people don't really want to spend money for the most part on risk reduction. How do you convince people that they should be working with you about something that may not yet have happened? So, Matthew, I'm not sure that I entirely agree that people don't want to pay for loss avoidance. I think it's more that if they are contemplating buying a product for the first time and you say that the product will help you avoid losses, they don't really believe that those losses are going to come anyway. And so they don't want to buy the product. It's not going to be a good motivation. But if you, in fact, later are able to have them see that they have avoided losses, it generates immense value and leads to very high renewal rates and engagement. But I also agree with you that a new client never wants to buy for that reason. And so there always has to be other reasons to buy. And we've actually done quite a bit of work to try to understand how you can get value in addition to loss avoidance. So we actually recently commissioned a study from an external advisor to try to understand the ways in which we can generate value and do generate value for our clients. And they ended up quantifying four areas of value. The first thing that they described was how working with our models lead to rating stability and improvements in rating. So most of our clients end up talking about what they're doing in exposure management or in enterprise risk management with rating agencies. And the advisor concluded that working with us leads to a 2 to 6% reduction in the cost of capital because of its impact on ratings. Second thing that our clients have told us is that in working with reinsurers, when they describe the ways in which they're managing their aggregations using our models, that they get increased seeding commissions. And working on that, our advisor estimated that working with us increases seeding commissions 15 to 25%. And third, did some work to try to understand how you can identify new business opportunities or whether there are opportunities for increasing pricing on underpriced accounts. They estimated that you can grow premium 2 to 5% working with us. And finally, they estimated that there's, because of clearer and more transparent description of your underwriting decisions and also the ability to convey the risk information that goes into underwriting decisions, that you reduce account churn by 20%. All those are ways that we say upfront, you can get great value from working with us. Then we start working with people, they make some underwriting decisions, they find out that they have avoided a loss, and that becomes a major driver of their decision to stay with us. Those are great stats, just to run through back through this. So you've got rating stability, reinsurance and commissions, ability to, I guess, price correctly and generate the right kind of premium, and then good underwriting decisions that mean you've reduced the churn. Presumably, you've got the stats that go with those. That sounds like a great thing to be sharing with a prospective client somewhere that people can go and find that if they want to get more detail on that, Bob. Yeah, absolutely. 
we don't put that up on our website, but anybody who reaches out to us, we're happy to share the report that was generated that was able to provide the quantification, the description and detail of how they came to those numbers. And going to come on a couple of things, you still haven't told me what Neko Model X actually means or where that name come from. I'm sure there's a story behind that. So Neko Model X, so first of all, I'll pull it apart a little bit. First of all, the X, that's obviously 10 and it came out in our 10th year. So we're following the uh, convention that's in a lot of technology to use Xs to uh, describe something that's the 10th version. It's not really the 10th version of our software because we didn't come out with it until 2016 or initially. But even though, I mean, it does sound a little bit like a 1970s DJ in the Bronx. I think actually that's the cadence of that is part of the attraction. So that's the X, Neko Model X. Neko is cat in Japanese. And so Neko Model is basically cat model. But it's a little bit more than that because there's this mythical Japanese cat called the Nekamata. And the Nekamata has two tails. It's this fierce cat that in ancient times would ravage villages. And for us, we love this two-tailed vision because liability is a two-tailed risk. When you talk to cat modelers about the tail, they'll tell you that there's a tail in size and they're worried about low probability, high consequence events. But you talk to liability people about the tail and they'll tell you that there's a long time tail in all of the occurrence form. And so there's two tails of risk in casualty cap modeling. And so that's why we call it the NECA model. That's great. Well, it's all over your website. So anybody who wants to see how it's spelled, just go to predicat.com and you can learn all about what NECA Model X does. It kind of talked a bit about what is inside there already and some of the other areas. But a couple of things I wanted just to talk to you about, I think we could probably cover them together, but we're big fans of the Lloyd's Lab. And you're on that twice. I'm going to cheekily ask you, was that because the first time you didn't finish your assignment, you had to go back to do it? Or were you so good that they asked you to go back a second time? And that aside, I know you actually had some great experiences there. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what came out of the lab. So we did have a great experience in the Lloyd's lab and strongly endorse anybody who's thinking about applying to do it. We did it the second time because... The Lloyd's Lab had found out that we were working on some scenarios of COVID losses and liability and were interested in doing one of the, the cohorts, which was one of the COVID cohorts. And they were specifically interested in supporting work that would help the industry to manage that risk. And in that cohort, we developed a DNO extension to some of our scenario models. And it's interesting because in the first cohort we were in, which was cohort three, we worked on developing a new type of liability insurance product that would cover both DNO and GL. And one of the things, in fact, that we found that got in the way of our ability to go to market with some insurers and reinsurers around this product was that while we had models that were for general liability, we didn't have models for DNO. And so we started to work on the relationship between DNO and GL, that's directors and officers of general liability, 
and the potential for clash between those two lines when you can have something like COVID where a corporation like Tyson, the meatpacking company, ends up having GL claims associated with people who are harmed while working in the company and then also have a DNO claim associated with essentially the same risk. And that is an increasing phenomenon. And we were working on it in a second Lloyd's lab that we were in. The larger arc, though, is interesting, too, because it turns out in cohort three, we met the folks from Experian, the credit rating agency. They, in cohort three, were working on developing a DNO model using their credit rating data, and they developed an initial version of it. And so after our experience in cohort five, after we started working with people again and having face-to-face meetings, the first face-to-face meeting that I had after COVID was with somebody from Experian. And we decided to merge our efforts to develop DNO risk models. And we are just now coming out with our combined model. It'll be in software in January of 2023. It was great to see that being announced announced recently. And I was just going to mention in passing, actually, because we also saw this recently, the announcement that you won Catastrophe Modeler of the Year, which I think, you know, back to sort of where the story started, sort of reinforces the relevance of what you're doing. And and actually, I think the story's come full circle. Whilst originally people were confused by what a casualty catastrophe model is, you're now being endorsed as a catastrophe model with casualty and other things, I guess. We were super excited when the Insurance Insider named us Catastrophe Modeler of the Year. It obviously is the first time that a non-property modeler has been named Cat Modeler of the Year. And so that says a lot about what we've done. And it says something about coming full circle. We're no longer just a liability emerging risk analytics company, but we're also a Catastrophe Modeler again. But it also says something about what's happening in the industry. When you're seeing risk of the emergence of new mass torts at a rate of two to three per year, then there's much greater concern about this risk than there was when we started. And then furthermore, you're seeing much more focus on it from regulators. So the PRA has made a major initiative around casualty aggregation in the last few years. The NAIC in the United States is also increasingly interested in understanding how insurers are managing this risk. It's a little bit overdue, I would say, because as I said earlier, it's a major driver of insolvency. And so that's how we hope by solving this risk, we're going to be able to really revitalize the casualty insurance industry and create that sustainable and profitable growth. And then, Bob, just as we kind of come towards the end, we covered a lot, but if someone was to go away and go, what are Matthew and Bob talking about? What's the, the most important thing they should remember about this conversation or even better, what should they be going to do after they've heard us if they're interested? Matthew, 30 years ago, when there was Hurricane Andrew and the Northridge earthquake and a lot of dislocation of property insurance markets, property cap modeling was there and it emerged as an increasingly important part of property insurance. And over the next 30 years, there was a complete transformation in that insurance line, where significant growth in reinsurance and the robustness to catastrophes transformed the market. You saw the rise of insurance-linked securities. 
it was an incredibly exciting 30 years. I think that the next 30 years is casualties moment. We're at the cusp of a time where, while the risk environment might seem scary, it's very different than it was in the 1980s and 90s when this stuff first started emerging, because there really is technology to manage the risk and to innovate and create profitable growth. And I think you're going to see the same sort of growth and innovation driven by models in the next 30 years in casualty that you saw in property in the last 30. So, Bob, that's a, that's a great takeaway. And you, Predicat, have been very good at helping us understand some of the nasty things that are coming ahead of us. So, you know, when you forecast that casualty is going to get bigger and bigger for lots of unfortunate reasons, but things we can manage to some extent, you've explained, I think we should take that very seriously. Just before we finally wrap up and let you go back to your sunny day in uh, in California, is there anything that we've else we should be talking about or that we we've missed from the discussion just now? Well, I would like to just highlight, we did talk a little bit about NECA Model X, and we're very excited about this new version of the model. And we have built it again from the bottom up to be far more robust, easily updated, incorporating new science, incorporating new litigation as it emerges. And we've gone from 72 to 250 risks, and it really creates the foundation for new types of ways of incorporating models into casualty business, things like exposure-based pricing and exposure-based reserving. And we're excited to work with the industry to advance these types of new ways of, of driving business and look forward to having anybody who wants to reach out and learn more getting getting in touch. Well, and we can certainly help with that. And with so much going on, let's not leave it two years till we have the next discussion. But Bob, been a real pleasure. Thank you for your support for Instec. Hope to see you back over in the UK before it's too long. And you might want to wait before the weather gets a bit better as well. But thank you very much. Sounds great. Thanks, Matthew. Well, there's so much fascinating content in there. We're going to be releasing this as a feature article in the near future. So look out for that. In the meantime, to find out more about what we're doing at Instec with our events, reports, articles, and newsletters, and what we can do for you, head to www.instec.co. That's it. We're done.